This morning we are continuing our series playbook, and our series playbook uh, is a series focused on taking a page, we've been saying, out of uh, the playbook of Ephesians, this, this playbook that Paul gave the church throughout Asia Minor to really help them understand the gifts that Christ gave the church to help us reach the fullness of Christ. And so before we get started, I invite you just to bow your heads and pray with me. Um, and just pause before the Lord. Father, we invite you to send your spirit to bring alive the words which we are about to read so that we can embrace your good news and your goodness in our lives, both as an individual and as a community. Teach and equip us through your spirit to demonstrate and announce these truths to each other, to the world around us, Allow what we learn to help us live and love more like Jesus. Lord, we invite you to pour out your fatherly love in tangible ways on us. Set forth an example for us in this passage through your Son, burned in our hearts with intimacy and your presence in deeply contagious ways. Amen. For our series, as I said, playbook is taking a page from the playbook that Paul gave the church in Ephesus to understand the gifts that Christ uh, has given the church to help us reach the fullness of Christ. And a playbook, for those of you who don't know, is a book that contains a team's strategies and their plays. If you watched our softball team play, we need a new playbook. Just joking, right there. Told you it was coming in the sermon. Throughout this series, I think that what we find is that um, in many ways, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, it's just written to many churches throughout Asia Minor, is a playbook on how to do church in a post-Christendom uh, world or the, in a world absent of a huge focus on Christ. Paul's letter writing to the church in Ephesus is really focused on how to believe and how to be. And, and we looked last week at how there's a prayer in the middle of that that separates those two places. First, the uh, first two chapters of Ephesians are really on how to believe, these theological foundations, and then there's how to be. What posture do we take as Christians? How are we transformed? How do we embrace what God is doing in us once we acquire the right theology? And, and we get this idea that, that really Ephesians is full of strategies and plays on how to be Christ's representation over us. And as we looked last week at Paul's prayer over the church, we saw that in, in many ways Paul gave the church six postures. And I'm only doing this for review of those that weren't there. That there is these six postures in which Paul gave the church so that we can understand the gifts that we are going to find here in a moment that Christ has given the church. And, and, and those six things are this. We are to live in communion with the Holy Spirit in our heart. That we are to live transformed with the... Uh, that is supposed to be with Christ's love. 
we are supposed to live surrendered to what we believe is impossible. Right? We, we got that 320 verse going over. It says, Christ is uh, immeasurably able to do more in you than you think he can do. Right? Our paradigms are blown up. We are to live worthy. We are to live called. And we are to live unified. And because of the way that Ephesians is very much an applicable book to us and our church context, I encourage you to continue to read Ephesians as part of your devotional time, your meditation time throughout this month. Now this week, I want to tell you the story of a king. And there was once a king that lived in Asia Minor, right around the time of Ephesians and Ephesus, actually. And this king had everything he wanted. There was nothing that realistically he should have been able to ask for because he, his family, lived in abundance. His land that he owned sprawled out for miles. He could not see the end of his kingdom. He couldn't walk in a day or even a week to the end of his kingdom. His kingdom was full of kingdomy things. He had statues, and he had things that were of beauty and gardens and, and everything that we could think, man, that would be great to have. He had at his fingertips. The king also believed that gold was the greatest happiness in life. In fact, he would spend his days counting gold. He was known to even sometimes fill a bathtub with gold and sit in it. And you kind of get that idea of Scrooge McDuck for those of who grew up on, on cartoons, right? Remember Scrooge McDuck? He would dive into a pool of gold and it would just splash everywhere. Sometimes he even made a bed of gold. He, he thought that gold was the number one thing in his life. It was the one thing that really shown him that he had achieved, that he had something to offer, that he had a gift worth having. In many ways, acquiring wealth was not only his obsession, the thing he was obsessed with, but it was also his passion. It was the thing he loved to pursue. Well, one day in the, in the kingdom of this wealthy king, there was a guy named Dionysus, and he was walking through uh, the kingdom with his uh, servant or friend. He was a wealthy guy, kind of had this partner, this friend that would travel around with him named Selenius. And so they're, they're walking through the kingdom, and for some reason, this kingdom's so big, and they're exploring things, they get separated. And, and suddenly, Dionysus, this, this wealthy guy, cannot find his servant, Selenus. He begins to look for him. They cannot find each other. And so Selenus kind of comes to this large garden of the king, this beautiful, long, miles long of a garden in which uh, is just so beautiful. And he says, you know what? I don't know where Dionysus is. And so I'm going to lay down here for a little while and sleep next to these roses. And just and, and in the morning when I wake up and I have energy, uh, then I'll go and look for my friend Dionysus. Well, the next morning, the, the wealthy king was walking through his garden. And he was surprised to see Selenia sitting in his garden. He knew this guy. He knew that this was a friend's servant. And he said, Selenius, what are you doing here? And he, and he explains, hey, I was walking through uh, your kingdom, and I was hanging out with Dionysus, and we got separated. And, and so I just thought I'd rest here. And, and the king is moved to compassion for his friend's servant. He says, come into the kingdom. Come, I mean, you're not going to sleep out here. Uh, you know, come in. I'll feed you. You'll rest. And then together, we're going to go look for Dionysus. So he brings him in and shows him hospitality. 
And when Salinas was rested, the wealthy king decided, all right, I'm going to invest some of my wealth now into finding your friend. And so they began to go out and look for Dionysus. Eventually, they found Dionysus, and he was overwhelmed that this wealthy king had taken such good care of his friend. And, and Dionysus had a weird, unique gift. His gift was that he could grant a wish. He could make a wish come true for somebody. So Dionysus said, I don't know any other way to repay you for finding my friend. He said, if I give you one wish, king, you, king, who have it all, what is that one thing you want? king looked out over his kingdom, realizing he had just about everything. And he paused, and he came back, and he said, You know, Dionysus, if I had one wish, I wish that everything I could touch would turn to gold. Dionysus looked at him. You, you, you have one wish. You have all of this gold, so much so that you're sleeping in it in beds, and your one wish is that everything you touch turns to gold. Yeah, I kind of really like it. So he grants it. He warns him. Sometimes the things we wish for, the things we focus on, can be our downfall. But no way, that can't be true. I mean, the king says, if I go to bed and wake up and have that gift, that's going to be the greatest day of my life. And so Dionysus and Salinas move on, and the king eagerly goes to bed early because he can't wait to wake up and find this gift to be true of himself. He wakes up, and he looks at his hands, and nothing looks that different. So he walks out of his bed in his kingly robe, and he sees this table sitting there. Suddenly, the table turns to solid gold. What? So then he touches his nightstand and a lamp and a statue, a slice of bread, uh, roses. Everything that he could touch turned to gold. He was amazed. This is going to be awesome. And so what he decided to do is he decided to walk through his kingdom and he said, my kingdom will be so cool if everything is gold. Oh, look, there's a statue of me. Gold. Hey, that wall I just built around my kingdom? Gold. Ooh, this whole garden? Gold walkways. And suddenly, he finds himself distracted by a rose that's next to him. Oh, that rose must smell so pretty. Look how it is. And he goes and to break off a stem of that rose smells it. And as he touches it, as he breaks it off to smell to gold, it instantly, as he smells it, it instantly turns to gold. Later, he's trying to have dinner, and as he touches his water, as he touches his bread, it also turns to gold. He began to fill with fear. He began to cry. I have lost something in pursuing this for myself. And instantly his daughter runs in, and, and the king is crying. You know, she's like, Dad, what's wrong? And, you know, he begins to explain to her, like, uh, everything I touch turns to gold, and it's not that great. And as he embraces her, and they're holding each other, she turns frozen and solid into gold. Despaired and fearful, he broke down in despair. 
he raised his arms and he said, someone take this curse away from me. That thing that he saw as his blessing suddenly became his curse. That thing that he saw as his gift suddenly became his punishment. And the legend says that his despair was heard and that he was instructed to go to a river that ran throughout Asia Minor and wash his hands. And, and it's said that as he washed his hands, the gold ran out from his hands and turned Ephesus' rivers into gold and, and so on. But he had returned home to find everything that he had once touched turned normal again. Midas hugged his daughter in happiness as she was on frozen from gold. And he decided to share his great fortune with all of his people. And from then on, he focused not on bettering himself, but using what gifts he had to better his people. His people then led a prosperous life. And when he died, they all mourned for their beloved now, if you don't know this story, this is a story we often call King Midas and his golden touch. It's a story that comes in Asia Minor right around the time of Ephesus and this letter. It's an ancient Greek mythology. In life, we're usually quick to take what we've been gifted with and gift ourselves more with it, or seek its pleasure more, or to better ourselves, or to advance ourselves. And in broken humanity, King Midas took that good gift that could have brought much for lots of people and used it for his own selfish desires and advantages to feel better about himself. And as a result, the thing that made him unique became the thing that brought not his betterment, but his downfall. And folks, so often we follow in the steps of King Midas. This morning, as we think about that, we're going to read from Ephesians 4, 7 through 13, this area where Paul introduces gifts to the church from Christ that are not gifts to better the people, but are gifts to better the church. They are gifts that are to be spread throughout the kingdom, not to better any person. This morning we're going to read, and I invite you to follow along. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. You can follow along on your app or in the Bibles in front of you or on a screen overhead. Listen in as we pick up where we left off last week to look at the gifts which Paul says Christ has given the church for the glory of God. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high. That's Christ. He took captives and gave gifts to his people. What do, and then I love that Paul puts his own theological like parentheses in here. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, or some versions say the shepherds and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. Now what's really fun is... Uh, even though all of our churches have pastoral staff, this is the only place the word pastor actually shows up 
in the NIV. And, and, the, and the word there actually just means shepherd. So some translations say that. So the most biblical look of what it means to pastor each other comes from this passage. As we look at this Ephesians 4, 7 through 13, I think there's some great stuff here, but it's also a deeply intriguing passage. In many ways, it can feel like theological speak. It feels like that Paul is running a logical circle around. What does it mean that he ascended other than he also descended? It's like this philosophical response to himself. And so often I think we look at this part and move past it. Like, hey, we like that verse 20 where it says about, uh, you know, he can do immeasurably more through us. And then we get into the apostle, prophet, shepherd part. But we, we skip over this part because we miss what it's saying. In this passage, Paul says, that Christ is giving gifts to the church to fill the universe with his presence. He, he gives the church gifts so that he can fill his presence throughout the world. He, he does so to equip his people for works of service. And, and to, he does this to build up the church so that the church can reach maturity and the fullness of Christ. Now, what I like about this is, what is our mission as a church? We are learning. Man, say that a little more confidently. We are, yeah, let's be really confident about that. That's like the journey of the Christian faith. Right? We're learning to live and love like Jesus. And Paul is seemingly saying, when we get our playbook right, our strategies and our plays, when we understand how to believe and how to be, in essence, we can harness an identity in us as a church and as individuals that is so equipped by God's Spirit that we can reach the fullness of who Jesus is. That should blow off our socks. We can reach the fullness of who Jesus is through these gifts. What a hope and a promise for a people who are committed to learning to we can actually get there. It's not a far-off thing. It's a lifelong journey, but together with the gifts and the equipment of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that the maturity, the fullness of Christ can be attained. Man, I love that. So in that, that means that these gifts that Christ has given the church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, are all expressions of who Jesus was. And so Jesus is our archetype of that. He, is, he was an apostle. He was a prophet. He was an evangelist. He was a shepherd. He was a teacher. About this passage, Alan Hirsch and Tim Kitchen write this. Listen to this. Paul is outlining in very simple terms the core ministries that make up the body of Christ. He clearly states that Christ has given uh, certain gifts to each one of us and distributed throughout the body as he sees fit. It is through the diversity of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, that we are able to perceive and operate in the full spectrum of Christ's ministry. The full spectrum. Apest represents ministry capacities that have been given to each one of us. They are not to be first instant leadership positions, titles, or offices. They are lifelong callings or vocations that are built into the very core of how God's people are called and empowered by God. Man, that is revolutionary. 
This is why recently we've asked small groups to name who is it in your group that is what? A shepherd. We are releasing the work of the ministry to the church, which is the job of the church leadership to see everyone equipped to do the work. Next week, we're going to break down the gifts themselves and what it means about these gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. But this morning, I want us to focus just on this one piece, this theological underline in which Paul gives to the church, or more specifically, Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. God sounds pretty revolutionary there, doesn't he? He took captives and then he gave gifts. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who had descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. This is full of deep implications, as I said, that we often just skip over. The God's Word translation says it like this. God's favor has been given to each one of us. It was measured out by Christ who gave it. And that's why the scriptures say, when he went to the highest place, he took captive those that had captured us. And then he went and gave gifts to the people. Now, what does it mean that he went up, except that to realize he also went to the lowest parts of the earth? The one who had gone down also went up above all heavens, so that he fills everything. Or some verses say, the universe or the heavens. This idea that Christ's gifts are to fill the world. Now, as N.T. Wright points out, this passage isn't that hard to understand. We just need to understand the context. As a first century Jew might have understood this verse from the psalm, which is this is from Psalm 68 where he's quoting here, to be speaking of Moses. After the exodus, when the Egyptians were defeated and the Israelites were rescued from slavery, Moses went up to Mount Sinai and came down with stone tablets of the law and the Torah. In many ways, at this time, the early church was writing a lot about seeing Jesus through the eyes of Moses, just so you know. And Paul sees the ascension of Jesus as being in a sense of that like Moses. Now, after the new exodus, which had been achieved in the death and the resurrection of Christ, setting the human race free from bondage of sin and death, Jesus then went up to the heavenly realm where he now reigns as Lord. That's what this passage is all about. Or we might say, instead of coming down again with the law as Moses had done, Jesus returned in the person of the Spirit. Instead of coming down with tablets of, this is now the law, he came down with his very presence. God gave through Jesus the presence of Jesus so that uh, those with different gifts could receive them and be showered with them and the church could be fulfilled in many ways. Now in the beginning of this passage I told the the folklore tale of King Midas. The king that wished he had everything. The king that wished everything he touched turned to gold. And I said in life we're usually quick to take what we have and better ourselves with it for our own pleasure and advancement, our own selfish desires and advantage. We use what we've been gifted with to make ourselves richer, to have a better retirement, to drive a better car, to have a better way of living, to enrich our family experiences. 
God has gifted each one of us uniquely, yes? And we can use that gift for our own pleasure, our own advancement, or we can use it for what it was created for, the church, to contribute to the church, to the mission of Christ. And if we aren't using our gifts, if we're underperforming, to use the language of Katrina's sermon back in the form and function series, if we're underperforming in the church, then we are no different than King Midas. If you are a consumer in the church experience, you are King Midas. You are using whatever gift you have out there and offering nothing here. And that's exactly what King Midas did to his kingdom. These gifts were never to be given to us as individuals, but to the church community, as the church. And our church needs those who operate like apostles, those who want to gain new ground, those who are prophets, those who call us back to the heart of God, those who are evangelists who say, hey guys, come along for the ride. There's a cool journey happening over here. We need shepherds, those who know how to care for people and and keep everyone on the journey while the leaders are leading and the, uh, the prophets are prophesying and so on. And we also need teachers, those who take the abstract thing that they hear preached or said and learn to repeat it in ways that people are like, Oh, I get it now. We need all of those things in the church. So often we spend so much time not liking someone else's gift that we actually work to undermine them, and that's happened too long in the church. Or we we think our gift doesn't have a play, and so then again we just pull back and use our gifts for ourselves. This passage is meant to call people back to God's intent. He is the king who went away and gave his gifts to the church, to carry one mission, his presence filling the universe. Now, perhaps parables like the parable of the sower, the parable of the tenants come to mind. Good, because Paul is doing that. He's reinterpreting what Jesus has already said through a new lens, and he is calling people back to the heart of that, that it is God's mission to fill the earth through the gifts of which he's given the church. As Hirsch and Ketchum also explain in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Paul reminds us that Christ, the revolutionary leader or founder that he was, left his movement and ascended into the heavens. And in most cases, the leader's absence would have shut the movement down, right? If, if most, church, most movements lose their leader, what happens to the movement? It fizzles out. By the end of the century, the church reaches like a million people. It's the opposite of what happens for the church. Why is that? Well, Jesus is the smartest leader that ever lived. In order to make sure his movement would keep going, he did what any good founding leader would do. Before he left the scene, he made sure his followers were able to do what he had been doing. It's no longer my thing. It's your thing. By taking his earthly ministry, he divided it into five basic categories, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, And Jesus ensured that the full spectrum of his ministry would continue to be represented in the world. So as we think about what this means for us, I encourage you to flip to the back side of your bulletin or open your app, and we're going to work through a few quick sermon points. It is important that we be aware, confident, and stewarding the favor God has placed on your life. Or this grace that God has apportioned. The word grace there is the word charis. Where we get the word? Anyone want to guess? Oh, he's just a charismatic. 
Well, that's where this word comes from. The, the idea that charis is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be confident and stewarding not grace, but the Spirit or the favor of the Lord that God has placed on your life. Knowing that, that Christ has given us a certain portion of it. Alan Hirsch says that God's people are to always be ever increasingly formed and conformed into the image of Christ. That we are always to see the spirit capacity growing. That we are to work on understanding what it means to steward this. And to steward it means that we are always to be forming and conforming into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians captures Paul saying the very same thing. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory or being transformed into his image image, this favor, this spiritness in us is growing in capacity with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the, the Spirit. Secondly, be aware, be confident, and be stewarding of the capacity in which Christ has given you. Man, we, we're all gifted differently, but some of us might be gifted the same, but also some of us might be gifted with different capacities. One of my giftings is to be a people gatherer. So I love concert promotion. I spent 16 years doing it. I love finding the ways to make the biggest audiences possible. And, and, and early days, you could throw up a couple flyers and get 300 people out. Now you can take out 100 ads and hopefully get 100 people. But, but it, because of the influx of things that are happening in our world. But I love gathering people. Well, there's other people who can gather maybe only 50 people when they do something. And then there's other people that I worked with that seem to have the ability to grow 3,000, pull 3,000 people with no problem. It doesn't mean that one of us is doing something wrong necessarily. It doesn't mean that uh, the guy can only pull 50 is bad at what he does. He's been given a different capacity. It doesn't mean that LCBC is bad because they have 5,000 people. It doesn't mean that uh, a church up the street that only has 10 is bad because they only have 10. It means that Christ has a portion different capacities. Now, sometimes there are other things in play there, right? I mean, there is growth that happens as we encounter God. But, but at the end of the day, we can only do so much. The average church in Lancaster Mennonite Conference right now, according to the most recent research, is 75.5 people. By that, we have a larger capacity than others. But then we tend to look at larger churches and say, whoa, they have way more capacity. What are they doing or what are they doing wrong, right? And the gifting is that Christ has given each of us different capacity. And we need to learn to honor those different capacities. We each have things. I'm not the only communicator here, but we all have different capacities of that. Michael Breen explains this part like this. The fivefold, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teachers, apply to all members of the body of Christ in varying degrees. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, by the gift of his grace, has empowered and equipped each one of us for service, and we all have been given different sized portions of grace and anointing. We each receive part of the whole. Now, our third point is this. We need to be aware, confident, and stewarding of the gifting that God has invested. So not just the favor, the Spirit, not just the capacity of those things, but also the gifting. He says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to the church. So what is this gift for you? Well, one of the things we've asked you to do is take an APES test and learn how you score in light of Ephesians 4. 
And let's just quickly, as we uh, start to wrap up, look at this idea of gift. The word there is duma, and it shows up three other times in the New Testament. One, in Philippians, when Paul's writing, he says, Now I desire your, not that I desire your gifts, right? I got enough stuff. I don't actually need a physical gift. But then we get this other idea in Luke and Matthew. And I'm only going to share Matthew's account, but Jesus says this. If you then are evil, know how to give good dumas to your children. Gifts, same language. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? Now, if you understand Luke's understanding of this, Luke pushes it out in a different way. Everything's except, everything's the same. Those of you who are evil, give good dumas, gifts, all, that, all that's word for word the same. Except he says that the Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him. We get this idea that the gifts and the Holy Spirit are totally intertwined. The third thing he emphasizes here, N.T. Wright says, is the way which the risen and ascended Lord Jesus gives a variety of gifts to the different members of the body. And lastly, we need to be aware and comforting, comfort, confident and stewarding the presence of God through your life so God's good news and his goodness permeates every area and arena of life. That's what is meant by fill the universe. It's to fill every area and arena. We are learning to embrace what salvation or what God's presence looks like in every area, our thinking, our actions, and our emotions. The fundamental logic behind all creational gifts is that of God's blessing, a blessing to be received, appropriated, and passed on. I invite the worship team to come forward. I think the problem in today's church is that many times we've acted in a way of King Midas. What's best for our church or what's best for me? And, and maybe as a worse, we haven't even allowed people to experience their gift. But however, I believe that if we really understand what it means to be aware of our gift and to steward our gift, to be confident and worthy of our calling, that these gifts that Christ has given to church, then there is a new way of living that is available for us both as individuals and as a community. And in other words, in words of Paul, when we reach unity in this in faith, And in knowledge of the Son of God, we become mature, attaining to the wholeness or the whole measure and fullness of Christ. In other words, this passage brings us hope that Jesus can fully be in our midst when we learn the way that our giftings and capacities and favors work together. Stop comparing yourself and start being thankful for the differences. I invite you to stand as we sing.